If you could please stand now at this point in honor of God's word. We're reading out of Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 5, and then verse 21. Again, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Isaiah saying, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And now verse 21. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? This is God's word. You may be seated as we go into prayer this morning. Father, we want to come before you this morning. We're thankful that you have gotten us all here safely. I pray that you would get us home safely as well. And for all those folks who are traveling, I pray that you would watch out for every person on the road today as we live in a place where one mile down the road, it can be an entirely different situation. So we pray that you would give wisdom to people traveling today and that you're hand of safety would be upon them. We thank you for Brian and Naomi as they are in North Carolina this weekend. We ask that you would look over them um, in their traveling, Father, and in, in the situation that Naomi needs to deal with there as she is down with her aunt. We pray your blessings upon them. Uh, pray that you continue healing for Brian as he's been dealing with a sinus infection and a cold. We, we lift up Kat to you, Lord. Um, we have been bringing her before you these past couple months. We continue to lift her up to you for continued healing and for salvation. We ask, Lord, that your hands be upon her, upon her husband and their family, that you would continue to just speak life, Lord, sometimes where there seems to be no hope, but that you would encourage her in ways that would reveal Jesus to her heart. We pray for her. We pray for Darcy as Darcy is there ministering to her. We ask that you would just give her wisdom and the words to say. But, Lord, we pray that her heart would be softened towards you, Lord, that this disease that she has um, would, would just be healed in Jesus' name and that your will will be done in her life. And we pray your blessing upon her, that you would bring encouragement to her and strength to her. Continue prayer for Taj as well as Tess coming back this week, Lord. I pray that you would just encourage Taj and Patty in the midst of all of the things that they are dealing with, that you would speak comfort and peace and strength to them. Continue to bring healing to his body as it rests and prepares for another round of treatment. I pray, Lord, that you would just encourage them both, encourage their boys and their daughters-in-law and their grandson. I ask, Lord, that you would just watch out for them in their house as well. For Flossie and her family, the entire family, they are going through so many things this week, Lord. And as they look to the future and they look at Christmas, I pray that you would just continue to strengthen and bless them and watch out for them, that your hand would be upon them. Lift up Dougie Ants to you, Lord, as well feeling dizzy this morning and mid-90s and spry and still young and yet at the same time or just not feeling well this morning we pray your hand be upon him that he can join us for Christmas whether it be Christmas day or Christmas Eve that you would just bring healing to whatever it is he's dealing with um, pray for all those here in our body Lord that are dealing with this cold that's going around um, that your hands would be upon all of them that you would encourage them and most especially as we get into your word this morning Father I just ask that you would remind us, as we've been saying 
all morning long, that you would remind us of what's really important. Help us not to get stuck on the little things and focus on all of the little things that could go wrong and do go wrong because they distract us from the bigger picture that you are king and that in celebration of this holiday, this Christmas time, the Christian holy day of identifying when our Savior came into this world, that's the big picture story. All the other things that distract sometimes are good, sometimes are bad, but they take away from the very fact that our king came and he came in such a weird way that it's unbelievable and yet it's true. Help us to focus on those things, Lord. And most importantly, as we get into your word this morning, help us to look at every human being that we encounter every day in the way that you see them. Help us to remember the words of St. Paul from the letter to the Corinthians in chapter five, where we are to no longer look at another human being from a worldly point of view, but we are to see them with the eyes of Jesus. And I know, Lord, I confess as we go into your word that that's difficult for me. And I know it's difficult for others as well. So we pray that you would help us to grow in that area as we continue to revisit this Christmas story this Sunday before our celebration of the birth of Jesus. So we just give you thanks and we give you praise, Lord. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts here this morning will be pleasing and acceptable to you and in your sight, our Lord and our rock and our redeemer. All for Christ's sake we pray these things. Amen. Sometimes things just simply get rough. It's good to take a deep breath. Gather in the house of the Lord together and dig into his word and just allow the Lord to refocus our hearts. So this morning, um, the last hymn that we sang over the offering once in Royal David City is the title of the message today. Um, I had not ever heard that hymn much before we started looking at our you know, Christmas season, which was a long time ago for Melissa and I. It wasn't just a month or so ago. Um, and it actually very quickly became my second favorite behind last week's Low Hollow Rose. So I've titled the message Once in Royal David's City. And what I want us primarily to look at this week is that this Jesus, born in Bethlehem, is firmly rooted in history, firmly rooted in divinity, firmly rooted in humanity, and ultimately because of all three of those things, he is firmly rooted in majesty and glory since the days of eternity before time ever began. So as I go into prayer and start digging into the scriptures and research and all of that stuff throughout this week, I've been constantly drawn to the prophet Isaiah, as you've probably picked up on. My first reading was into Isaiah and chapter 7, and then this reading is in Isaiah 40, and constantly drawn there. And I've discovered, after all, he is the one Old Testament prophet who speaks more about the birth and death of this Jesus of Nazareth than any other Old Testament prophet that we encounter. Over and over and over again, Isaiah points forward to the coming king, a Messiah, the promise fulfillment of all of God's covenantal promises to his people Israel and ultimately to the world itself and to all of humanity. And the hymn this week that we decided to look at, again, as I said, it's my second favorite behind Lo How a Rose, directs us over and over and over again to the reality of this coming of this Jesus, both in the past and future. You see, the challenges that are presented here for us are huge if we take them at face value. And it points us to many of the reasons why this story is actually rejected by humanity and put to the side in the whole grand scheme of doing life every single day. So, you know, Scott Carnes, a writer 
in one of his writings, gathered together in Bonhoeffer's book, God in a Manger, Reflections on Advent and Christmas, which I've been reading this Advent season, makes this statement about the unfathomable mystery, and I think it's important for us to hear in the midst of all of the things that we deal with and the struggles that we have. He says this, Now there is no more reality and no more world that is not reconciled with God and in peace. Let me say that again. Now there is no more reality, no more world that is not reconciled with God and in peace. That's what God did in his beloved son, Jesus Christ. Ecce homo, all the incarnate God, the unfathomable mystery of the love of God in this world. God loves human beings. God loves human beings. God loves the world. Not the ideal human beings, but people as they are. Not an ideal world, but the real world. That's a profound statement. Especially as it relates to how it is we act towards one another. You see, if God waited for perfection, if he waited for us as human beings to somehow figure out how to fix the mess that we put together, we'd still be waiting for him to act upon our behalf. Thankfully, he's not us, is he? He's not us. Nor did we have to wait for, nor did he have to wait for us to act and have our act together in order for him to do something for us in this world. You see, he loves us as we are. He loves us exactly as we are. So much so that he refuses to leave us as we are. That's a challenge for each and every one of us. He loves this world, but he loves this world so much that he will not allow his good creation to be abused over and over and over again and used in a poor manner forever. We will have an accounting. There will be that day, but that day is for another day. You see, because G.K. Chesterton once said in looking at Christianity, he said this, that it has not been tried and found wanting. Rather, it has been found too difficult and therefore left untried. It's a deeply true statement as we look at the Christmas story. For in an age of subjective moral reasoning, it is difficult to stand on the ground of objective reasoning and objective truth. We don't live in a society that accepts that, both within the sciences as well as in the philosophies and the religions of this world. To claim that a truth is absolutely universal is to be completely closed-minded according to the culture and the world we live in and even seen as hateful. I'm going somewhere with this, so please let me work this out. Because it's painful for me to watch as our culture destroys itself over rights we demand. It is painful. I want you to hear that. I say this over and over again because we've got to get this into our spirit. It is painful for me to watch when our culture destroys itself over the rights that we demand and root that demand within our current feelings today. How I feel on Tuesday is what right I want to demand. Which then means when the moment changes and the wind shifts and I don't feel that way anymore, we have to then shift our story. We then have to shift what we think is right. After all, when the culture defines the story, the story is constantly changing. Trying to understand it is like trying to nail jello to a wall. It doesn't work. See, that's the deep struggle with Christianity and the Bible itself. Because here it sits, 
The story is absolutely unchanging and it is rooted in history. It's not rooted in some fantasy. It is a story that is absolutely unchanging. Sadly, it's been used. It's been abused in horrific ways. And we have to admit that as the church of Jesus in this world. And it's been manipulated for political gain, for self-gain, and for promotion within this world. We have to identify that. Yet it remains Christianity and the Bible right in front of us, unchanging. It is frighteningly unbending. And yet at the same time, this book is deeply loving, deeply encouraging, and vitally important to the stability of humanity today. It stands there and sits there stubbornly unbending to the ways of the world. We see that in our reading this morning in Isaiah chapter 40. And we'll get back there, I promise, we will. It requests so much, you see, the Bible does. It requests so much of us as human beings. Yet it really only requires one thing. Obedience to the king. In a nutshell, obedience to the king. See, therein lies the issue, doesn't it? We've discovered over these last few weeks, we want obedience, don't we? Any parent in this place, what's the instant answer when you ask, do you want obedience? Yes. Uh Uh-huh, I want obedience. Why? Because it's good. Problem is, is we want obedience in accordance with our will. Our desires, our opinions. That's where we want the obedience, not anyone else's. Not somebody else's point of view. You see, and the Bible doesn't allow for that. It never allows for that. And therefore, the story is offensive. Just be prepared. It is what it is. God has a plan and has had a plan since the days of eternity, before time itself, that in Bethlehem, he would come into this world. Unbelievable? Absolutely, without a doubt. Untrue? Absolutely not. Just because something is unbelievable does not therefore make it untrue. It's just unbelievable. That doesn't mean it's not true. It's unbelievable that we can't feed children in New York City, but we can put a person on the moon, but it doesn't make it untrue. Again, a story for another time. Because time doesn't permit for us to take off down that path as productive as that path would be. We need to focus on the hymn. And the hymn that we chose this week focuses on these things. And as I studied this week, I've told you I've focused primarily in the book of Isaiah. And that's what I took away. Two things. One kept coming up in my notes. Isaiah chapter 40, those first five, five verses. Okay, It's a chapter of comfort. And I leave that to you to read when you go home. It's a very short chapter. You know, it's all of uh, 31 verses. I'd encourage you to read it. It's a chapter of comfort. It's a chapter of freedom that God proposes. It's a chapter of God and his word being true and eternal. And he's always sticking to that. Even when we doubt or we simply don't do what it is we're supposed to and we choose to reject it. All of that in those 31 short verses. Rooted in ages past. History itself. The Bible from the very beginning talks about the coming of what Isaiah says here. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You see, we broke everything right at the outset. And right at the outset, God decided he was going to fix it. This was and is God's answer to our problem of rebellion. He will fix it. He will come looking for us. He will walk with us. 
So the other was a simple outline about this hymn, Once in Royal David's City. Now, Alistair Begg, again, I quote him a lot along with Bonhoeffer, but, you know, you're probably all like, find somebody else, but no. He put out four things about this hymn that makes it his particular favorite. So Just Do goes to Alistair Begg for the outline of this. I didn't create this outline. Everything that fills out this outline belongs to me and what it is the Lord led me to talk about this week. But what Begg says is that this Christmas hymn was so powerful because it was written for little kids so that little kids could understand the basics of the Bible in a very simple way. And it roots itself four ways. First, in history. Second, it roots itself in divinity. Third, it roots itself in humanity. And lastly, it roots itself in majesty. Pretty powerful, simple hymn, isn't it, for a little kid? You see, as we discovered these past weeks, stepping back and looking at as best as we can from the outside in to this particular story, it's bizarre at best. And it's very hard to believe. And we visit this every Christmas, and if we've been doing this for 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years, it becomes very normal for us. Have somebody come in here who's never heard the Jesus story before and throw this thing at them. It's a big curveball. It's bizarre. In fact, in many ways, it's so unbelievable as to make it believable. It's the only way that we can make any sense at all out of this. You simply would not create a deity story of some sort of rescue attempt for broken humanity in the way the Bible does, unless it's true. And then assume people are still going to believe it. So why believe it? Well, a great question. You see, it's a strange story, but it is rooted and it is grounded where? First, in history. Solidly planted in history. Once in Royal David's city stood a lowly cattle shed. It's a place. The hymn opens up for us in a way that is rooted in a place. Not some secret cave far off somewhere or a mountain journey going to find yourself as you navel gaze for a few days. A place. It's in a place. It's in a time. One in which Micah spoke about that we learned the very first week and that we learned of, Micah 5.2. Luke records it for us. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called what? Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Luke, the historian, the research geek, in the ancient Near Eastern world's version of the Encyclopedia Britannica, finds that in speaking with all of these eyewitnesses that he's investigating, the story that keeps being consistently told over and over and over again by everyone he interviews is that this Joseph and Mary end up in Bethlehem and that she gave birth to this baby boy. It happened during the reign of Augustus, while Quirinius was governor, and it happened during the first census. Those are all important things for us to know. Absolutely nothing vague whatsoever about this story. That's the beauty of the hymn, Once in Royal David City. He dates it and he roots it in the reality with the people that he mentions. He makes the story testable and falsifiable. Our feet aren't firmly planted in midair when we read the story of Jesus' birth. This isn't something that was made up. In other words, if you wanted to prove Luke wrong, he has given you more than enough information and evidence to follow the trail right to its end to see if what he's telling you is actually true and if it was right. Jesus was no mystical figure, as some people would claim today, that he never really even existed, made up to fit a story of hope for a people oppressed. That doesn't even make sense, but again, that's not what we're focusing on. 
You see, he wasn't made up to fit into some story that somebody invented along the way. No. Jesus of Nazareth was born to Joseph and Mary in a little place called Bethlehem. Once in royal David's city, a place in time and history, stood a lowly cattle shed. You see, Mary was the mother, and Jesus was her child. Even Josephus himself, the Jewish historian who lived just one short generation after these events, verifies these things. As a matter where he falls on what he believes about them, he verifies that these things are true. And having established these things in song, the hymn writer then turns from history to divinity. It's not just rooted in history. This story is a divine story. Jesus is a real parent, a real person born to real parents in a real place. We find that divinity has made it so. Divinity has made it so. When he tells us in the hymn, he came down to earth from heaven, we sang this morning, who is God and what? Lord of all. You remember our study from Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7? What happens there? I hope you do. You need to feed my ego a little bit or I'm just not going to come down here anymore. Child born, the son given. That's Isaiah 6, 9. Or 9, 6, and 7. Into history, divinity itself shows up and in the most bizarre of ways. He exchanges glory. He exchanges glory and his shelter was a stable, the hymn says, and his cradle was a stall with the poor and the mean and lowly. You see, herein lies one of the problems that we have with the gospel story. This divinity within humility. Our pride and our desire to rule and run our lives is why we have the most difficulty with things like this. Because according to the scriptures, our creator, our creator emptied himself of all that he deserved in order to come to us and live among us to save us and his good creation from sin, from death, and from the pride that keeps us from him. He came down from heaven to earth. (laughs) Another song we sang this morning. You see, we have a little issue with the story of power. We have little issue with the story of might and victory and regaining our rightful place on top of where we think we ought to be in this world and our heap in society. We have no issues with that whatsoever. But to say that we have to be like this Jesus and give it all up is absolutely absurd. We won't go down that road. You see, we want to be a Caesar or a Herod who will bring to us, that's what we want, who will bring to us a victory in a different way that puts us back in the seat of power. If you don't feel that way, we don't have to go too far beyond James and John, the two sons of thunder, to understand that Jesus had people who lived with him for three years who still felt that way. So I dare say we, we, we probably have this issue. You see, because that's not a God story. No, we want our power our way. You want victory? You want power? Look at the child born. Look at the son given. Look at the stable. Look at the barn stall. Laying with the poor, laying with the outcast the rejected of society, the cast-offs of the world. That's God's story. It's hard for us to grasp sometimes. That's God's story. History, divinity, humanity. We aren't looking at some mystical idea that was birthed in someone's mind. No, the hymn roots this Jesus squarely within humanity. He was little. 
He was weak. He was helpless. That alone is a problem for us as well. We don't want a king like that. Tears and smiles like us he knew. And he feels for our sadness and he shares in our gladness. That is an encouraging thing for us today. I don't know what you're dealing with this morning. But hear that. King of the universe, with tears and smiles like us he knew, he shares in our gladness and he feels for our sadness. That's how important you are to him. See, his humanity, I think, is one of the most unsettling things of all. This Jesus, a real human, we've got little issue with the Jesus who heals. Very little issue with the Jesus who feeds hungry people and lets the powers that be have it all with both barrels for their abuses and their arrogance. But this humanity thing is pretty damning for us when you think about it. Because he showed us that it is possible to be a human being and 100% please God. And that messes with our mojo because now we're confronted with the truth that it is possible. And you know what that then means? We're the problem, not him. And that's unsettling. He did it. He did it. And that condemns us. And honestly, we have a very, very hard time with that. You see, this whole go and do likewise thing becomes all the more real and all the more hard because he didn't condemn us just to condemn us. He condemned us to save us. If that makes any sense at all. See, this puts us in places that we may not like if we want to be like Jesus and with people we would otherwise choose to avoid because they aren't like us. They don't think like us. They don't dress like us. They don't live like us. Then we judge them for not being like us and then wonder why they don't want to be like us. You see, his divinity put him among the lowly. After all, he's God. There is nobody higher than him, so one step down from his throne, and he's among the lowly. It wasn't much of an effort. But it puts him among the lowly. His humanity, however, I want you to hear this. His humanity, however, gave him empathy and sympathy for the human condition. That's what it did. He has feelings for our plight and our journey through this broken world. Why? Because he did it. He did it. The writer of the Hebrews is very clear. If we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Boy, this is hope. This is hope. Let us therefore with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, Jesus, fully divine, fully divine was also a real man. He walked the roads of Palestine as well as every road we walk in our lives. He was tempted just as we are and yet was without sin. You see, God in his divine nature could have fixed this issue any way. I've said this last week. I say this over and over again. He could have fixed our problem any way he wished. He chose, however, to be born in a manger, fully divine and now fully human. Rooted in history, the divine becomes human. As one of us, in order 
that because of this Christmas story that we visit every year and we read and we think it's a quaint little thing, we behold his majesty. The last thing this hymn talks about, we behold his majesty. Our eyes at last shall see him through his own redeeming love for that child so dear and gentle is our Lord in heaven above. That's the beauty of this hymn. And again, this is one of the deep issues that we have with the biblical story. We can handle the baby in the manger. All of us can. In fact, it's a cute little thing to set up on village greens and commons all over the United States. He's meek. He's mild. He's so innocent laying there in the straw there as a little baby, isn't he? It's a beautiful picture. You see, there's a problem with that. It's a major problem with that, and I've said this a couple times throughout this Advent season. This manger in the city of David ultimately leads to the cross on the hill outside of, outside of Jerusalem. You can't have one without the other. So this quaint, beautiful little manger story, which really isn't when you think about it, but this quaint little manger story leads to the cross. We can handle a nice Jesus who preaches love and tolerance and forgiveness. All of those are in the scriptures to be sure. But we constantly come up against the wall and we have to pick up that cross and decide to follow him. This is what I hear mostly as a pastor. Our stubborn struggle to let go of ourselves and to pick up his cross. Mark 8, 34. Anyone who would come after me, let him deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. I've shared this with many people, but you want to know what rights we have? There it is right there. In a nutshell, Mark 8, 34. Give up my rights, lay down my life, and bow a knee to you. Now it becomes a little bit of a problem, doesn't it? You see, because this Jesus upsets people. He does. He divides people. And as many know, he even causes rifts within families. Because some are saved and accept the message of the gospel while others don't. And then we struggle with that, how that works, how that looks, and we're pained when we know people who should know Jesus don't know Jesus. But that's what happens. Jesus divides people, he upsets people, and he causes rifts. Again, as the hymn writer proclaims, for that child so dear and gentle is our Lord in heaven above. And that right there is the line in the sand that gets drawn in this gospel story, the majesty of this Jesus of Nazareth in history. The human being is the majesty and exact representation of God above. St. Paul tells us this in Colossians 2, verses 8 and 9. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. For in him, in him, fullness, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. What Paul is saying is that if you've seen Jesus, you've seen God the Father. And Jesus said so himself when Philip asked that. And that is a problem. See, if this story is true, we are forced to make a decision. We can't ignore it. Humanity cannot ignore this story. This beautifully simple hymn you're talking four points in a prayer should bring conviction to anybody who reads once in Royal David City you've got everything you need to understand 
everything you need. We cannot ignore this story. We are forced to do something with this little baby who grew up to be the man on the cross. See, Tim Keller in his book, Hidden Christmas, as I move to a close here, says this, intolerant Christians appear to be a threat to the whole social order. Now, he's talking about Jesus' day. Intolerant Christians appear to be a threat to the whole social order. Historians explain that early Christians were, as a result, often discredited, excluded from government jobs, cut out of the best business relationships. Again, think for a minute. We think we've got something new here. And occasionally physically abused and imprisoned. In our secular society today, Keller continues, non-Christians do not fear divine reprisals, but increasingly our culture also sees Christians as a threat to the social order. Traditional Christian beliefs are once again seen as dangerously intolerant, and some kind of restriction and exclusion may be in our future as well. So the gospel message brings hostility because it is seen now as then as intolerant. Here it stands, unmovable, unbendable, unchanging, rooted in history. As the gospel writers declare, Matthew and Luke give it to us in the birth story. John tells us in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Mark tells us that he came up out of the desert, was baptized in the Jordan and proclaimed, here is my son. There it is. All four gospel writers give us the story of this Jesus. The divine became human. His majesty is reflected on the cross if I could have the worship team. And his majesty is reflected through the resurrection itself. And a choice has to be made. A choice has to be made. This baby in a manger, the salvation of humanity and the world itself, born in royal David city, in the words of Simeon the prophet, and you'll find this in Luke chapter 2, I believe it is, Simeon the prophet waiting in the temple for the coming of the Lord, looks at Mary and says that your child was to be the causing, the cause, the rising and the falling of many in Israel, and it's a sign that is to be opposed. Eight days old. This old geezer comes up to her and says, this is what the Lord showed me. He's the Messiah. This is the confidence I want to give you. This Jesus is who the angels have said he is. But oh yeah, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. Your son's going to cause the rising and falling of many in Israel. And he's going to be a sign that will be opposed. How true that is some 2,000 years on. Again, the challenge for us all, and I leave you with this. What are we going to do with this baby in a manger? How are we going to share this baby in a manger? This real Jesus that rises above the garbage that's being sold. This real Jesus that speaks life into dead situations. This real Jesus who tells us, look, I have come for you. I have come for the world. I want to make you my people for my world and put you on plan again to save humanity through your life through the confession of faith in me to know who I am born in Bethlehem the royal city of the son of Jesse I close with this statement this Jesus is rooted in history because of his divinity and his humanity through the cross we behold his majesty once in royal David's city stood a lowly cattle shed as we close in this last song and we go into prayer, I want to ask you, what are you going to do with this Jesus this Christmas? If we could stand.
those who are willing to pray, if you would please come.